If you turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9, uh, with the page numbers, that's page 481 in the Church Bibles and 741 in the Large Print Bibles. Ezra chapter 9, and tonight we're going to be looking at just verses 1 uh, through to verse 4. Ezra chapter 9, 1 to 4. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the word uh, idiom. An an idiom is a group of words that are joined together and they have a meaning that you wouldn't understand from those individual words. So, an example of that is this. The phrase, tearing your hair out. It's an idiom. We know what it is meant when we say it, but if you just take that at face value, it doesn't mean very much or seems rather strange. And tearing your hair out is a way of describing somebody who is feeling perhaps uh, extreme anger or frustration or anxiety. So for example, you're stuck in traffic, you may feel like tearing your hair out. Or the day isn't going as planned, you feel like tearing your hair out. The children are arguing or you've received that phone call with bad news or with just frustrating news, the list could be endless where you could describe yourself as wanting to tear your hair out. And tonight, as we see the book of Ezra, we see him literally tearing his hair out, which is actually a bit of a surprise following what we have read so far about Ezra. Over the last two chapters, we've seen Ezra return to Jerusalem with the purpose of re-establishing God's law. And he was a man, we read in chapter 7 and verse 10, who had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. He was devoted to the study and observance of God's law and he taught it to God's people uh, so that they then could follow it as well. And we've read in chapter 8 of that amazing story and in chapter 7 too of how God moved the heart of the king of the Persian Empire so he could go back and establish the law. And in chapter 8 Ezra had arrived after this long journey of 900 miles. He had his rest and he worshipped God with God's people. It's all a really good story. Things are going really, really well. But as Ezra preached it seems that some of the leaders were convicted by what he was saying. Ezra taught God's word and as he did so, it was having an impact. But it had an impact on him too. It made him tear his hair out. So what happened? Well, let's read Ezra chapter 9 and verses 1 to 4. After these things had been done... The leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race 
with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. This is God's word. What made Ezra tear his hair out? Mixed marriage. Mixed marriage. And over these next two chapters, we come to what I believe is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. As we read it, we may well ask, is God really asking his people to do what they end up doing at the end of chapter 10? And what we'll do is we'll look at these passages and break them down into three parts. Firstly, tonight we're going to look at the problem, the sin of mixed marriage. Next week, or in two weeks' time rather, we'll look at the prayer of confession. And in the final week, we'll look at the act of repentance, what they did. And as we break this down in this way, I hope that these chapters will not only give us a sense of what was going on in Ezra's time, but also will challenge us in our faith, And in our holiness, which is exactly what Ezra was doing. He went there to re-establish the law so God's people would be holy. And it's recorded so that we can read it, so that as God's people, we can be holy. That's what these verses, these chapters at the end of Ezra are there for. And at the end of uh, this book, we should have a longing and a desire to do what it takes to be holy as God's people. That's what... I would like to see at the end of it, not um, that figuring out exactly what it meant and all, uh, in terms of should we divorce uh, and all this kind of thing. The answer to that, by the way, is no. As you read the end of chapter 10, you'll see why that question is important. But it's, the point is, we need to be holy as God's people. That's the key. So, mixed marriage is what we're going to focus on this evening. When we say mixed marriage, uh, what we mean is God's people, Christians marrying Christians and not marrying non-Christians. So there's nothing racial when we say mixed marriage. There's no uh, colour connotations here. This is God's people should marry God's people. Christians should not marry non-Christians. That's the big point of these four verses. In the Bible, we know it's not uh, foreigners as in people from different countries. We see both Moses Uh, and Boaz in the book of Ruth marrying foreigners who had converted to be followers of the Lord. So mixed marriage in the Bible, being a sin, is Christians marrying non-Christians. That's the sin that is talked about here in Ezra. But as we look at this uh, topic, I'm aware that other than those who are married to Christians and those who are not married at all, there are two other groups which I want to address directly first. The first group are those in the church who have already married 
non-Christians. They're already married to non-Christians. Now, this can be for a variety of reasons. Some, if we're honest, have disobeyed God in the first place and are living with the consequence of that sin. Some have been converted while they were already married. Some have spouses that did walk with God when they were married, but have walked away from the faith and are treated, therefore, as non-Christians. All of these things, whilst difficult and sometimes just tragic, don't change the command in the Bible that Christians should marry Christians. And we need to be sensitive to these situations, but we must also look at what the Bible says, whilst being aware of the tragic situations that people do find themselves in. But one thing needs to be clarified now, so that we have this answer and we're not wondering about what the answer is until the end of three weeks' time. In Ezra chapter 10, the the, the answer for God's people at this time was that they were told to divorce the non-believing spouses, those that did not turn to God. And we see that this was a command given to God's people at this specific time. And as we read the New Testament, we know that it is not right for us as Christians to divorce non-Christian spouses. I I, want to make that clear at the very start. The answer is not go home and divorce your non-Christian spouse. That is wrong. And in the New Testament, we read not only not to do that, but we read in letters to Christians how to live with non-Christian spouses when we find ourselves in that very difficult situation. So that's the answer to that question if you're wondering, does Ezra chapter 10 mean I need to divorce? The answer is absolutely not. It's, we'll see in that chapter it's for God's people at this specific time in a unique situation. So that's the first group, those that are married already to non-Christians. The second group I I want to be aware of, and I'm not going to be so sensitive to this group, are those who are dating perhaps non-Christians or who are considering uh, going into a relationship with a non-Christian. For these people, there's no sensitivity here. I want to warn you from the scriptures and express clearly this is a sin, this is wrong, and this is what this passage addresses. It is a sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian and therefore... It is a sin, at the very least it's very foolish, to be fooling around by dating non-Christians. It's a foolish and silly thing to do because it's a sin to marry them, so don't do it. That is, in no uncertain terms, where we get to from these four verses. And I don't want to make uh, any uh, exceptions to that rule. If you are in that situation... That is a sin, and we'll see that as we go through this passage. So, with those things in mind, let's look at Ezra chapter 9. It doesn't give us all the background as to why it's a sin. Ezra the man had been teaching the law of Moses, and no doubt the passages which deal with mixed marriage in the law of Moses had come up and it had pricked the consciences of the leaders of this time. And in verse 1, they come to Ezra and they talk to him about what had been going on regarding mixed marriages. And what we're going to do is to look at other places in Scripture and it will tell us very clearly from where Ezra would have been teaching from that God's people are commanded to not, to, to not marry unbelievers. So we'll look more next week at Ezra's response to the sin, but if his response of tearing his hair out of his head and his beard and tearing his robes 
shows us anything is that this is not okay. You don't do that when things are okay. If it was a good thing, he would not be tearing his beard out. It hurts. It's not good. So Ezra shows us it is wrong. Okay, it's wrong. They had not kept themselves, it says in verses 1 and 2, separate from the detestable practices of the nations that surrounded them. And verse 2 tells us how they had done that by the men taking as wives the daughters of those nations. And this was a sin because God has commanded the people not to marry unbelievers. There are two passages which Ezra would have known well as a student of the law and would have taught the people, possibly pricking their conscience and coming to see him. And the first one is, Ezra, uh, is Exodus 34. And I'm going to show these on the screen. Uh, so if you don't want to turn to them, you don't need to. Exodus 34, verses 12 to 16. So let me read uh, that to you. Sorry if it's a bit small. But Ezra chapter 34, verses 12 to 16. So this is God speaking to his people as they are, have come out of Egypt and are being given his law. They're going to go and receive the lamb that God is giving them and this is the command he gives them. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. So notice, first of all, the names of these nations. Um, they're they're mentioned in Exodus they're the same as those uh, in Ezra we'll see that in Deuteronomy but as God talks of the nations he's talking of these same ones and he says that if you marry intermarry with them they will lead your sons into those detestable practices so God had told them in Exodus 34 clearly here don't do it don't make a treaty don't covenant with them and of course therefore don't marry them And then we come to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 1 to 6. And here we see the names of those nations. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drive out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Look at verse 3 at the top there of the screen. Do not intermarry with them. Do, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters to your sons. It's very clear, isn't it? There is a command. Do not do this. Do not intermarry with them. And this is the exact 
law that Ezra was going down to re-establish and to teach. Uh, just one more place is in Joshua chapter 23 and verses 12 to 13. In Joshua, here he's giving his goodbye speech to the leaders after he has led Israel into the promised land. This speech was to tell Israel how they were to live in the future. And if you remember, as we looked at the book of Joshua, not everyone has been yet driven out. There are still people there from other nations. And Joshua says, but if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So, intermarriage with those foreign nations would cause the Lord's anger to come and those wives and husbands would be snares and traps for God's people. They would lead God's people astray. Well, perhaps uh, some of you may think, well, okay, well that was the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament time now. Surely it's okay in these days. I'm not going to marry a Gergeshite. Surely uh, the person I'm looking at dating is perfectly fine. Well, no. The New Testament also is clear on God's people not doing this sin. Uh, In the New Testament, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 about widows uh, remarrying. He says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to remarry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. He must belong to the Lord. Now this command refers to widows, but Paul uh, is not saying that non-widows, therefore, can marry non-Christians. It's understood that a Christian marries a Christian in the New Testament. And so Ezra has this, this strong reaction to the news of intermarriage because the people had disobeyed God's law, which he was teaching to the people. Let me make it clear again. A Christian who marries a non-Christian is disobeying God. And it's serious. Marriage is not a decision that we take lightly. The Bible teaches that marriage is for life and so the decision to join a covenant, which is what it is, it's not just some ceremony that doesn't mean much and you can break it. The Bible teaches it is a covenant for for life. If you are making that covenant and promising those vows before God with a non-believer, it has lifelong consequences. This is serious. And it's to those consequences which I want us to turn to now. Why was it that God commanded the believers should only marry non-believers? What is God's reason for doing it? And this is a command where God gives his reasons why. So let's look at those. I'm not going to show these verses on the screen, but they refer back to what we've already looked at. When God commands his people to prohibit, when he prohibits them from mixed marriage, he shows us why. He says, when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead you to do the same. That's Exodus 34. When you marry someone and they have other gods, they will lead you to do the same. That's what God says there. That's the reason, isn't it? In Deuteronomy 7, it says, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve 
other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. They will turn your children away and they will cause you to serve other gods. In both those verses we see that mixed marriage leads to believers following other gods. And back in Ezra 9, we see this happening. Look at verse 1. The people, including the priests, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices. With the detestable practices. So they weren't separate. They didn't just marry and carry on serving God. They participated in the detestable practices. In Ezra, people did worship at the temple. Oh, they went to church. We saw that at the end of chapter 6. But there was a mixed religion where in the mixed marriage there was compromise and they also worshipped other gods. One commentator writing on these verses says this, The influence of a foreign mother with her connection to another religion on her children would ruin the pure religion of the Lord and would create a syncretistic religion running contrary to everything in the Jewish faith. In other words, they would be hearing one thing from Dad or from, and from Ezra and from the teachers and another thing from the woman that that man had married. And there was something mixed. It wasn't pure religion, pure Christian or Jewish religion. And he, this commentator says in the end, It was a question of their religious identity. And in the New Testament, Paul writes to the Corinthians about this very kind of thing. He talks about idolatry in in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, there was non-Christians that were offering sacrifices to idols in their society. And the Christians are wondering, well, do we join them? And Paul says, no. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 14 and 15, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now yes, Paul is talking here of idolatry, but Christians have always understood this to also relate to marriage. A yoke, where it says don't be unequally yoked, Uh, was what they would use to fit two animals together on. And it would be two of the same animal. You'd have two oxes yoked together to pull the cart. You wouldn't have an ox and a pig pulling together. The cart wouldn't go anywhere, or they'd be going in different directions. And that's what happens when you marry a non-believer. There is an unequal yoking there. Because in a marriage, we should both be going in the same direction. But here there is different directions. And in a marriage, when we're unequally yoked, it stops the two people going in that same direction. It's hard, isn't it? Harsh, perhaps, uh, teaching that you may think, oh, I'm not sure about this. But God gives the reasons. It's clear in the Bible, a Christian should marry a Christian. Why is it that this happens. Why is it that they... What, how, how is it that this happens, rather? How is it that Christians and non-Christian marriages can go in this opposite direction? Well, it's for this reason. Marrying unbelievers always 
leads to compromise and often leads to apostasy. Apostasy uh, is a word that means walking away from God. It always leads to compromise and often leads to apostasy. Let's think upon this statement for a moment and we'll see it work out in Ezra 9. How, first of all, does it always lead to compromise? Well, here are some scenarios. What are you going to do with Sundays? You will be faced with a choice sometimes between your church family and your spouse. Who are you going to choose? You won't be able to say no to your spouse all the time. What are you going to do with your finances? You can't give as perhaps you would like to to the Lord's work because your spouse would have no desire to do so. How are you going to bring up your children? Your spouse will not want to be teaching the Bible and even if they do, the children will soon pick up the fact that one believes and one doesn't. And both parents have an influence. What about hospitality? You can't open your home in the same way as you could when the couple are are Christians. What about how you celebrate Christmas and Easter and other Christian holidays? But most of all, what about the support in following Jesus for yourself that will not be there? The battles that you have to face in living with a non-Christian. As a Christian, Jesus is the biggest priority in our lives, the one that we want to glorify above all else. And you just cannot give him the glory in your life when you marry an unbeliever in the same way as if you did not do it. That is what happens when you are unequally yoked. It always leads to compromise with the church, with money, and so on. And I would also include here, and do so carefully, the wisdom of of marrying someone who says they are a Christian, but doesn't live like one. Or someone who says they are a Christian, but when you dig into what they actually believe, it's not really what a Christian ought to be believing. If your uh, theology is totally uh, at different ends of the scale, that is unequally yoked. And let me urge those who are not married and who have perhaps a desire to get married, don't settle for low standards. God has, if it's his will for you to be married, he has someone for you that meets, not perfection, you'll never find that person, but at least someone that loves God's word, someone that wants to pray with you, someone that wants to be in church and wants to serve God. Don't settle for anything less than someone who is serious about following Jesus. Have high standards in that regard for marriage. Being married to a non-Christian Being married to a nominal Christian makes living as a Christian difficult in the one place it should be safe, which is the home. But the truth also is, because it's seen time and time again, that often, but not always, but often, it leads to apostasy as well. That is, walking away from God altogether. And the reason for this is, we can use an illustration. If you imagine... If you're standing on a chair and someone is below you, is it easier to pull someone up or to pull someone down? 
Of course, it's far easier, isn't it, to drag someone down than it is to pull someone up. And that is what may happen with a non-Christian being married to a Christian. It's far easier for a Christian to be pulled down. And if you are under the illusion that, well, this won't happen to me. If I get married, I'm I'm a strong Christian. It would never happen to me. Think back to what we read about King Solomon. King Solomon was a man who had everything going for him spiritually. I always remember when I first read the story of King Solomon, when I became a Christian, I'd never read the Bible before. I'd never opened it in my whole life. And I decided to read it. And I read about Solomon. And I thought this man was, I mean, this man to me, when I was first reading, was, he was Jesus. You know, he, was, he had everything. He, was, uh, he, he asked God for wisdom and he received it. The, the story of the Queen of Sheba coming from another land and him blessing her. The, the riches he was given, the things he built, the temple he built for God. This man was amazing. And I actually cried at 1 Kings chapter 11. I read this chapter and this man that I thought was amazing turned out to be just like everyone else in that respect. All the other kings. He was a failure because he had married other women who turned his heart away. Solomon was a man who was given great wisdom by God and in this area he fell. And then after he married these hundreds of women, verses 4 and 5 of 1 Kings 11 says that as he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. He perhaps tried to pull them up, but in the end, as he grew old, he was pulled down and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. And he followed after other gods. The years and years of his mixed marriages led him further and further away from God and as he grew old, he worshipped other gods. And his kingdom was torn away and when his son was king, it was split in two and the consequences were catastrophic. And the same thing was happening in Ezra and Ezra knew his history. He knew what had gone on with Solomon. He'd seen the way that the nation had gone and the way that it had taken into captivity and so when he heard that it was going on again, that the Israelites had not learnt their lesson, that they were still marrying these other nations, he tore his hair out and he ripped his robes. Now, I want to make another comment here to those who are already married to non-Christians. You are in the situation you are in. And the New Testament gives clear instructions on how to live in that situation. I am not saying, hear this, I am not saying that you will turn away from God in the future. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that you you must be aware of the challenges. You know the challenges of living with a non-Christian. And we as a church need to pray for you in that situation. Because it is hard. You know that it's hard. And we need to pray for you. And yes, pray that you continue to follow Jesus. Because it's hard, isn't it? But if you are not married, don't do it in the first place. Because we've, we've had people that we've seen through our youth ministry, sorry, in Ivy Bridge, and they've done this. 
they're not following God. Don't think this will not happen to you because I've seen it again and again. And that's why Ezra tore his hair out because he knew the same thing. But for those that are married to non-Christians, we pray for you. We pray for you. Now perhaps some people may listen to this message and think, well, is it that serious? Is it that serious? Are you really saying that when two people are in love, surely they can get married? It can be tempting even when our children are in this kind of relationship to to say, well, surely it's okay. We we try and make excuses and, and say, well, no, it's not that bad. But this is something that the Bible brings up again and again. We, we see this happening frequently in Scripture. It's not just a one-off verse of Scripture that we can debate. This happens over and over again. It was a constant problem for God's people that caused their destruction by the Babylonians. And Ezra shows us that we need... Sorry, my clicker's not working. We need... God's people need to realise the seriousness of this sin. So that's the third point that's not up on the screen. God's people need to realise the seriousness of this sin. God had led his people back to the promised land. There was another exodus, a chance to rebuild and restore the worship of God according to his word. But we see that the people were making the same mistakes as their ancestors. God's people had not been taking the sin of mixed marriage seriously. And we read this at first in the beginning of verses 1 and the end of verse 2. At the beginning of verse 1, we read how the priests and the Levites, the religious leaders, were involved in this sin. At the end of verse 2, it seems even the other leaders, that perhaps were the secular leaders, were also involved in this sin. And when the leaders condone this, it gives the impression to those who they are leading that this is acceptable. And it's a warning to those in leadership in the church and in the home because our children watch what we do. Members of our church watch leaders. And if the leaders don't take it seriously, how can you expect the people to take it seriously too? But Ezra shows us it's very serious in verse 3. It says, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Tearing clothes was a common way to express grief. And Ezra does this by tearing both his tunic, which was his common clothes, and his cloak, which was his official clothes as a leader. And he grieved as an individual and for his people. And he pulled his hair from his head and his beard It says he was appalled. He was appalled. And the word appalled comes up twice in verses 3 and 4. This sin was serious. It was appalling to Ezra. Appalling. It was horrible. It was serious. And then look at how the people joined him in recognising its seriousness in verse 4. It says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, of, of the God of Israel, gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Those who trembled at God's word 
joined him. Trembling at God's word is a way of saying that they were serious about God's word. They held it in the highest regard and reverence. They accepted it as true and they understood that they must follow it for God's glory and their good. And so there was a corporate loathing of this sin from those who were serious about God's word. This indicates to me that not everyone did tremble at God's word. We'll see later on that not everyone agreed with this stance that Ezra took. But those that did tremble, they sat down with him and together they were appalled at this sin. This sin is serious. And those who are serious about God's word, those who tremble at God's word, recognise entering into a mixed marriage is a sin. It is appalling. And next week we'll see how this, uh, th- this should be our reaction to sin more generally. Sin is appalling. And as we look at Ezra's confession of sin, we'll see that this is something we should feel about all sin. But with this sin in particular, he was appalled. And those who take God's word seriously, those that claim to love Jesus, must also take this sin seriously too. It was taken seriously because it was a command given and because of the consequences that come from not following this command. And so we must, as God's people here in Pelsall, take this seriously. And it's with this in mind that I want to come to just the end and applying this message to us. Because I'm aware that perhaps the majority of people in this room are married, maybe. I don't, I don't know, I haven't done a count, so I'm not going to, but perhaps I know there are many people here that are married and are married to Christians. How do we apply this to our situations? Well, first of all, pray for those that aren't. We've said that earlier on, pray for them. Pray that they continue to follow God. Pray for chance to witness. Pray that the, the spouse would become a believer. But I want to mention something else that's related to this, but not explicitly brought up in this text. Although we are dealing with mixed marriages here, I want to mention the issue of not associating ourselves with that which leads us into sin or into, or and into these detestable practices. We'll see that a bit later on, but when we uh, are thinking of making covenants and treaties, which we've looked at in Exodus, all of us are tempted to turn our hearts away into following other gods and making alliances and treaties with them. And the question we must ask ourselves, and we will ask ourselves over the next uh, number of times in Ezra, is what is leading you into detestable practices? What are you willing to get rid of in terms of associations for the sake of your holiness? It goes further and deeper than just not marrying a non-Christian. I don't want you to leave today and think, well, that's okay because my spouse is a Christian, it's fine. What are you associating with? What gods are you making treaties with that lead you into detestable practices? What are you uh, watching on television? What are you searching for on the internet? Where are you going in your spare time? What are you doing with your time? Are any of these things leading you 
into detestable practices. Let's have at least that as an application for all of us. But regarding the specific sin of mixed marriage, let's apply it in our own lives. First of all, we've said, let's pray for those who are married to non-Christians. Pray for their walk with God and for the conversion of their spouse. If you are married to a non-Christian, let me give a word of exhortation here. Be willing carefully to explain to anyone who is tempted to go down this road of why they shouldn't. Be prepared to do that. Allow me to send our young people to you to warn them not to do this. If you are, this is another application, if you are in a relationship with a non-Christian, you have to do the hard thing. With explanation, not just a text message, (laughs) with explanation and with kindness, get out of this relationship. Get out of it. Because it's wrong. And I would just make a comment on uh, what could be termed as uh, evangelistic dating. You show me in the Bible where Jesus says to do that. He does not say to do that. And in fact... It very rarely works out. Sometimes I concede that someone has become Christian through this, but very, very rarely does it happen. And your testimony is not enhanced when you're saying to someone, you are more important than Jesus. When you're saying to them, Jesus is my king, and and with your actions you're saying, but actually, I love you more, that isn't a, a, a witness. That isn't evangelism. It's, it, it's sin. Don't be fooled into thinking, oh, I'll date this person to reach them for Christ. You know what? God, God can reach that person for Christ in other ways. You are not going to save anybody through dating them.